Hey, welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Steve Edwards. Hello from a cold Portland. AJ O'Neill. Ah, I lost the window. Oh, oh, my mic's on. Okay. <laughs> wow. Uh, yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from the shed. From the shed. Yes, Just the we shed. are recording professionals for those of you listening. <clears throat> right. We also have Dan Shapiro. Hello from a Tel Aviv in turmoil. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week we have a special guest. It's Tanner Lindsley. Tanner, do you want to introduce yourself? Let us know who you are, why you're famous, all that good stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Um, let's see. I started a company about 10 years ago called Nozzle. We reverse engineer Google search rankings and sell that data. Um, because of that, I've had to build a ton of front end stuff, mostly around like SaaS, like it's a SaaS application data application. So we got into a lot of querying, a lot of data visualization, um, lots of screens, data exploration. So, uh, I, I got into open source to solve all those problems. And then some of them were not solved really well. So I started building open source libraries to solve those problems. So early on, it was like React Table, React Query, which are now just called Tanstack Table and Query. I have a charting library that's not that great. Um, there's a virtualization library, which is actually great. And yeah, and then some new stuff that we're working on, hopefully this year. Working on a router, probably a framework. Yeah. <laughs> we need another framework, so thank you for that. Yeah, why not? Uh, right? We do. We do. The right. ones we have are terrible. It's been at least, yeah. what, a day or two since the last one came out? Yeah, but you kind of need to be pedantic in that it's not so much a framework as it is a meta framework, I think, according to the current oh. nomenclature. And that, but yeah. should we clarify that that doesn't mean it's owned by Facebook when we call it a meta <laughs> framework? Oh, yeah. What? Meta framework is any type of framework not created by meta. <laughs> it's a pseudo uh, framework. Wait, wait. Yeah, there we go. So um, I'm, I'm just curious as we dive in, right? We, we brought you on to talk about Tanstack. Um, I think there was some noise about uh, you releasing a Tanstack router, but um, you kind of just, I, I guess, you just kind of wetted my whistle. I'm just really excited to dig into this and go, okay, so what wasn't out there that you needed to be out there in order for you to be able to reverse engineer Google? Well, Obviously, there's a lot of backend stuff that I have nothing to do with. So we were a three-person co-founder team, all technical. Uh -huh. So there's two other guys who are on the backend and infrastructure. So our CEO is database infrastructure backend guy. And then our our main backend guy, Joe, is over all of like the data like gathering and the entire process, the machine. <laughs> you know, that goes out and gets all that data. So there's a lot of stuff there that we could maybe talk a little bit about because I know a whole lot about it, but I, I don't know the inner workings too much. But so there's that. But everything that I've dealt with is, has been, you know, from API design forward to pixels. So mostly product facing and, and user facing. Uh-huh. But yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that we built to do that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the 
10 stack, um, well, meta framework, rendering framework, set of tools, whatever we decide to call it, or you decide to call it, is built primarily on top of React, correct? Um, it was. It was built primarily on top of React, and there's still a little bit of that, uh, of that uh, nostalgia in, in a lot of the libraries. Like, most people use Tenstack Query through React. Uh, most people use the table through React. But both Query and Table have become agnostic, so they are now just kind of core logical libraries that have adapters around different frameworks. Which... Other libraries are joining that club slowly. Okay, so uh, this is interesting to talk about the table just because I'm in a project where I'm looking for a good implementation of a data table. Um, so if I'm working in a view project, which is my primary development tool, is that I could use Tantable with inside a view? Yeah. So there's a view table adapter um, that really is just responsible for hooking up reactivity around your data and options. And then it spits it back out to you in the form like that, like that, uh, that adapter is just calling some vanilla TypeScript things and setting them up to use inside of Vue. So yes, you could use it in Vue. So just to clarify, all of the 10-stack uh, ten tools and or parts are built in effectively vanilla JavaScript or TypeScript on top of the browser DOM? Or are you using some sort of a framework inside of them? No, no, they're, they're basically just built from the ground up using TypeScript. Usually some class-based TypeScript, not always. But query table, so so que the query library, the table library, and um, the virtual library are all built with agnostic cores, and they have adapters. And you could probably build your own adapter for any of those pretty easily. Query is a little more involved, but there's adapters for most everything for query now. Table and virtual are really lightweight, really easy to write adapters for. Um, so if there isn't an adapter for them, it'd be easy to create one. The charting library I have is React only currently. And I'm actually planning on not sunsetting it, but just kind of not working on it anymore, writing it into the sunset a little bit. Uh, I have reasons around that. We can talk about that later uh, if you want. And then um, the router is interesting too because I started out building it in an agnostic way. Um, and I still could do it in an agnostic way, but... The problem with that is that, you know, React, the React ecosystem is kind of this, this uh, snowflake a little bit, where it was the first ecosystem that I really feel like there's a lot of different routing strategies and routing libraries out there. You know, Gatsby, I think, uses mm -hmm. Reach, but it's kind of its own thing. Uh, there's React Router that's dominated the scene for a long time, still does. And then there's Next, which is just its own routing library, right? So as a framework, like React feels strange where like you could have, oh, multiple routers in the, in the ecosystem living together. There's not a lot of that in other frameworks, I feel. There still is other routers in Vue and, and Svelte and, and Angular and all these, but m there's way more like 
uh, I don't know, community gathering, I think, around just kind of one de facto router. And with the way that meta frameworks are going, it's kind of in the best interest of an ecosystem around a framework to unify on a router in a way. React will probably keep having multiple routers and that's fine. But like thinking about like Solid and Svelte, like it doesn't do them any justice to have multiple popular routers in the ecosystem unless all of them can work really seamlessly with, you know, with Svelte Kit or like, you know, the, the all-inclusive story. So long story short, I have deprioritized the agnostic approach to the router mostly because there's already great routers out there for other frameworks, and I don't feel like I need to solve those problems yet. Um, and I'm just going to build Tanstack Router to be React-specific. A lot of it's still going to be agnostic, to be honest. Like, I'm just, you know, still have an agnostic core and, and just make it React-only. Um, because at the end of the day, I really would love to port a lot of the great things about it to other frameworks, if possible. Not through like making another router, but like I talk with Ryan Carniato all the time about how I want to improve the type system for solid router. And the best way of doing that is likely not creating yet another router for solid. It's working with Ryan to take the concepts out of Tansec router and build them into the de facto router for, for the ecosystem. So... Uh, that I that get... would be much harder to do for like mm. React Router and Next. You know, we're talking about major rewrites to support types and stuff. So it's it's a bit of a moonshot. Yeah, get, getting to that, to the concept of a type router in a minute, because I think that's like one of the most important topics for us to talk about. Um, but just to touch on what you mentioned before about other frameworks being like more locked to a particular uh, router implementation, uh, I, I think that's kind of almost by necessity. I mean, it seems to be the way things are going because if you look at something like uh, Quick, uh, Quick is in intrinsically tied to its router implementation. Uh, it, it kind of everything revolves around its router implementation. And I think some of the other frameworks are kind of going in the same direction. It's only really with React that for such a long time the library was router agnostic and managed to succeed despite this fact so that there was like a, a proliferation of router implementations like that happened, you know, at the point where you couldn't really go back. Um, right. But it might, it starts, it's, you know, I don't know what would happen, what will happen with Remix, but it seems like the next router might kind of eventually take over, don't you think? I mean, they're kind of, in a way, promoting Next as the future of React. It's it's uncomfortable for me to think about a lot of this because, like, React Router is great, and Remix is fantastic. I use them both. Um, and Next is great, and I use it as well. And then I think about the things that I've heard from the React team, the React core team, about how you know Next is just going to be an implementation of a router, right? 
and not not necessarily the router. And I think the React core team would really want to stay away from that. But reality kind of says otherwise right now because the only like they're working really closely with the next team. I think some of them are now working for Vercel, and I just feel like that may be their end goal. Like that may be the moon that they're shooting at. But at the end of the day, how much work is going to have to be put in to have a router that works the way that you know React wants it to? That's my question. So is it going to be worth it to have another router that can do that? I, I don't know. I think so. I think there's it's going to be worth it. But right now, Next is kind of the only one that they're saying, oh, yeah, it's the router that we're putting all of these ideas into, right? Those ideas are really hard to, to nail down, in my opinion, about what is actually happening inside of the magical Next router for server components and all that which I think is why Remix took the approach that they did. And, and that's why I think it's actually really cool that they did that. They just kind of said, we don't want to wait around for server components. We don't want to wait around for a lot of this stuff to, to proliferate through the React team into you know, whoever their favorite is right now. They just kind of went ahead and did it and came up with their own flavor. And that flavor is, is really cool. Um, but I would like to see, I would like to see there be multiple routers still in the ecosystem. Obviously, I'm building one, so I want to see that flexibility stay there. Um, the idea that Next.js and the React team are working so closely together to like to build this router that's going to work perfectly with server components—it's both really intriguing and also kind of scary because, like, I don't want the secrets. You know, and and the patterns and the 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 cool things about server components and whatnot to kind of feel locked away inside of this framework. Um, but I know that sometimes that's what has to happen for things to progress, right? You got to work really tightly with people to to work on new ideas and proliferate new technology. So. This I'm is the question I, I I have in regards to the whole router scenario is. Normally, we want separation of concerns, right? There's there's a benefit to ver vertical integration where everything is coupled with everything else. But I mean, typically, isn't that the whole point of component-driven architecture is that you're not coupling everything to everything else, that you can have discrete pieces that can perform their responsibility? So why why is there such a... a, a, a why is the router so fundamental to the whole architecture of the application rather than just being a pluggable component to begin with? Why, why does it tend towards yeah. that? I think in the past, it has been very componentized because we are doing everything on the client. And when you're doing everything on the client, the entire ecosystem was based around the client, right? When you when as soon as you're in that context, yeah, everything can stay really componentized and and just handle what it needs to handle. But over the last five six years, as things have started, you know, pushing back through through SSR and then into you know meta frameworks and and now server components, going back to kind of server driven routing with you know SPA routing kind of being added in now, that's changing because. I feel like it's exactly with React. They're adding server component stuff. And, and at some point, you have to have opinions about 
you know, how things are moving across the server through, through IO and, and to control that experience, you have to, you have to have your logic living at, at a higher layer of abstraction and, and being able to only render pieces that it needs to and move things around and intercept things and send them to the server and back. And the, and the best place, the only place to do that really is in a router. Um, so where React didn't need to have any opinions before, they kind of need to have at least some pluggable opinions on routing going forward. And React itself doesn't really have a whole lot of opinions. The way that I understand it is there's, there's kind of just this endpoint uh, you know, the, this pluggable endpoint that you can feed React and say, hey, when we're doing server component things, this is where I need you to point and, and call things. And then you need to have a router on the back end that can understand all of those calls and be able to um, understand all of the use client and use server stuff. It needs to be able to uh, only render pieces of the page that have changed and package them up and stream them down. So it's just getting way more complex from the router's perspective. It's just getting more complex to, you know, to satisfy these new constraints. Yeah, I have to agree very much with everything you're saying. I, I mean, I think there are two really core pieces to what meta frameworks are, which are becoming like, like kind of touching and interfacing with everything. One of them is, as you explained, is the router, which kind of needs to know what's happening on the client, what's happening on the server, how to get data across from one side to the other. And the other is the bundler, where you need to be. And, and in fact, the bundler and the router now need to kind of know what each one of them is doing, because which code is being sent to the client really depends on where you're going and where you're coming from and stuff like that. Absolutely. I always, not always, I guess for the last year, I like to ask people, you know, like, what is a framework to you? Like, what does that even mean? When people say like, oh, you have a meta framework or whatever. Like, what are you talking about? What does a framework give you when people say a framework? And everybody has different answers, but really I've been able to boil it down to most people are referring to a big portion of a meta framework being a router. The next portion of it has everything to do with how it interacts with the server, whether that's just, you know, SSR into the client and then fully hydrated, uh, whether that's, you know, an incrementally progressively hydrated thing like Remix or now going full server components. Like those are all different flavors of this, of the server part of a framework. Um, and then the other parts of a, you know, what is, what is a framework? A lot of it comes down to data fetching and mutation, right? It's just the flavor of how you do that. Um, and then there's also this underlying uh, portion that's like about deployment, right? So people talk about a framework. Everybody is also concerned with the underlying deployment strategies. Like if you look at, if you look at Next.js, it's not, it's not just founded on like a, a great framework, right? But it's also built on like a really good deployment strategy. And next, Next.js has really fought hard to have that work well. Um, Remix is the same way, like maintaining adapters and, and the story behind just deploying and getting your stuff out there um, and supporting like the spectrum of things that need to be working really well. 
to deploy all these different types of like the the different types of applications, right? The deploying ISR versus um, you know all all static or or fully server long running servers serverless. Like there's a lot of deployment architecture that goes into that, um, and like which is why I I'm really attracted to like Astro because they've kind of solved a lot of that without um, without kind of marrying themselves to a JavaScript framework of choice. And they kind of just say, hey, we'll support everything, which is really attractive. So it, it's kind of all these things of, of routing and data and bundling. Bundling is, is another part, which is going to become even more important with server components because now your bundler has to know how to do all the server component stuff. So it's just things as we've created this really this really intricate and honestly pretty great ecosystem of SPA land, right? And now we're trying to move everything back to the server. And it's just <laughs> and and it's creating it's creating a huge shift in like, wow, okay, all of our tools need to get way better now and need to work. Everything needs to be a little more tightly coupled and bundled. Like there's this constant unbundling and bundling of ecosystems. Uh-huh. And right now we're in a bundling phase where for everything to work in unison and harmony, it has to get closer together. So you're, that's why you're seeing all these things, you know, kind of conflate into a single location. And I'm sure we'll get there and it will be great. And there'll be a season of productivity. And then a new paradigm will come along. We'll be like, crap, we have to unbundle this to move forward. And so you'll see it again, unbundle, <laughs> you know? So um, I, my, my piece of this is that I just, I don't really care a whole lot about what framework I, I'm using or um, like, I don't care too much about the tools themselves as much as the assurances and the features that I want. And one of the reasons I started building my router was because no one at the time was taking routing type safety seriously. Absolutely mm-hmm. no one. Uh, and still, I mean, Next.js added some stuff, just barely, in an experimental thing about you know type safe paths and routes and stuff. I I saw it as a necessity. The things that I was building at Nozzle, they are they are so big and interconnected that I needed extreme type safety around all of my links and keeping data in search params. Like, I can't tell you how much state I've hoisted out of use state into the search params. And we're not talking just like, oh, what page are you on, right? It's like 10 widgets on a screen. Every widget has its own state, which is like a big chunk of JSON that basically constitutes a SQL query happening on the server, right? And then all the display logic to show it to the user. So it's a lot of state in the URL. And no That's one... That's awesome, though. That's awesome yeah. that you've... Because because I, I that is the thing that we had right with jQuery. jQuery had jqbbq. And I don't know how we fell so far to the point where now you can't copy and paste a URL and get anything resembling at all what you were at on the other side. So I am extremely happy to hear that because I think that is the yeah. worst aspect of well there's a lot of worse if it, if it if it doesn't work at all that's obviously the worst thing which many right. I, I can't tell you in the last two weeks how many sites I've gone to I can't even pay I can't click the pay button to give them my money right but right. 
But uh, after that, I think routing, being able to share a URL from your computer to somebody else's, I'm so happy to hear that you're working on that and really taking it seriously. You know, I ju- just just to give, if I can just give my two cents on that for a second, because I've also been running into this problem recently from a different amusing perspective. So I've got accepted to uh, to several conferences to speak at, and I wanted to post links to my talk at, the, at these conferences on Twitter. And in some cases, I either l- just can't because there is no URL with parameters that gets to my talk, or I have to open like dev tools, find IDs in the page and, and start copying and pasting them like into the URL manually. It, it's like, like we're, URLs. We're back to cookie-based routing. Like URLs, like, you know, URLs. Yep. Yeah. It's it's enraging too because like Next and Remix, they do a really good job for the most part, for most of the things. They, you know, everything about Remix is route-based. You know, you do all of your data fetching and loaders off of the route. Same with Next. Um, so, but, so, they do really well with like page level at the page level stuff to be honest they do pretty well um but it's it's search params that fall flat on their face uh because in both and not just these but many many routers out there you just say what are search params it's a it's a black bag of string to string to unknown (laughs) type no it's a record of string to unknown it could be anything you want or it could be nothing we have no idea right um and the utilities around manipulating search params are garbage. They're just like, okay, create a new record of string to any and give it to us and we'll shove it into the URL. Like there's no thought about validation. There's no thought about uh, serialization. Um, you know, can you put JSON in there? Can you not? What's going to happen if I hand an array of something to to my to a search params API? Is it going to you know, is it going to comma separate them and put them into the URL? Is it going to encode them? Is it going to, you know, base64 it? Like what's the, what's going to happen? So a lot of those questions, I've been through those questions. And um, like I wanted I wanted to build uh, the state of the app, right? That's the thing. There's kind of this, people are going to say, well, there's no apps versus sites anymore. It's just it's all just the same, right? And that's not true. Like I, I feel like there's the spirit of the app that lives on, and and um, there's a big difference between a content site and an e-commerce site and an application or managing complex state, right? Have you ever been to Amazon and clicked on all the filters in the sidebar and seen what it does to the URL? Like it's mm-hmm. insane. It's storing all of that information in the URL because if you take that URL and send it to somebody you need to make sure that they're going to see the exact same filters, the exact same stuff. And it's really hard to manage that in, in you know, a React application. How do you do that? So that's been the, big, the biggest driver for building my router. Now, all the other stuff has just been side effects. Because I have my own router that can handle the, the types and the search params well, I also have to have solutions around data fetching. And I, you know, and now people are asking about the solutions around, well, does it support server components? And um, how can I stream, right? So I'm kind of being, you know, 
I have this requirement for a type safe router that can handle really good search params. Um, then that's my bar, right? But everybody else is like, well, because you have that, you basically need to have a meta framework as well. <laughs> so. I think it might be worth. <laughs> I think it might be worth explaining a little bit what a type safe router actually means. I mean, you've kind of you know you mentioned it several times, but you didn't really go into the details of what that means. I think it's, it'd be worthwhile for our listeners. Yeah, and and I'd also like to know that where do the errors surface? Because I feel like that could be a very bad experience when I just you know at first for sure. blush. For sure. So, type safe routing. Um, let me walk you down the concepts of what's happening. So usually you have um, at the top of your route tree, you've got you're building this route tree, right? Uh, because everything we do now is component based. Same with our routes; they're like these components, and they're hierarchical. And as you're building your route tree, um, going down your route tree, you are defining structure for your application. You're defining all the available URLs that are going to be there. And then for every unique representation of the URL hierarchy, at every single branch and leaf node of your route hierarchy, there is a type of uh, function signature, if you can imagine it that way. And it's what parameters can I send into this route and what is it going to return or make available to me? And those parameters are a combination of path params that are going into the URL, like the path part of the URL itself. Um, search params, which to most people is just big black box, right? But for us, it's okay, here's this structured, it's a structured generic that you can pass to search params. And then what you get back is usually in the form of, you know, what's the loader data that you're getting back or what are the unique, um, like what's the unique context that has been built up by this route? So if you can think of the entire route tree as you match a route and build the route match for an individual URL, as you go down the route tree that you've matched, you can kind of add things into the context that you're carrying down the route tree until you get to where you actually render your routes. And where you render your routes is where you consume all that stuff, right? So it's almost it's basically a function. When you call the function, you're writing links and navigate calls, right? So you write your link component, you say link to, and that's what, you know, that's a parameter in the function. Search params is another parameter in the function. So if you kind of draw that similarity, hopefully you can see how it's very much is TypeScript. Like, writing a link, you're just calling a function and you're feeding it a bunch of parameters. Those all need to be typed. And then when you're inside of a component that's rendering uh, the result of a route, you need to have access to the context, the loader data. You need to know where you can navigate from there in a relative sense and if it's possible. Um, if you're manipulating search params, you need to know all of the, you need to know the types exactly for what are my current search params and what are the search params like where I'm going. And if you can figure out those two things, you can write a type safe uh, reducer function that will feed you the current search params for the page you're on, fully typed. You can manipulate them into the new type 
and then it will type check everything and make sure that you're only performing navigations to valid places with valid structure. And when you get there, all of the all of the data you can consume out of the routing layer is fully typed. Um, to do all of that together takes a lot of like architecture that is based on TypeScript and how TypeScript works. You can't just grab React Router or any old router off the street and say, we're going to add types to this because it has to be thought of from day one. How is this going to work with TypeScript? Um, I know that because I tried it. I tried to write full types. I had tried to backport types onto React Router version 6 beta for a year, and I just couldn't get it to work. I'm not surprised, um, I have to say. And Next.js is super cool. Like They're doing generated stuff. You can back your way into it a little bit if you use generated code, right? Code generation. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's actually like other libraries out there that can do code generation for React Router and um, for Next and stuff that will generate type-safe API helpers for you to use. That's really cool. Um, but Tanstack Router doesn't need any code generation. It's just TypeScript, and it, it works fully compiled. So if I can take a practical example, just to make it a bit clear, uh, if I change the route, the, uh, uh, the route tree, you know, either remove an existing, let's say I remove an existing route or rename an existing route, if somewhere in the code I have neglected to fix to fix the code for that new route, I will get a type error. That's essentially right. that's essentially the safeguard that you're providing. It's it's not that I have to avoid broken uh, routes using I don't know, let's say tests. It's I avoid broken routes because my code literally can't compile if I have a broken right. route. That that's like right. the key benefit is that obviously additional benefit is that, that I get completion so that if I'm starting to type uh, some sort of a route into one of my links, then I, I get the all the, the typing properly. And in the context yeah. of, of params, if I understand it, basically, you know, effectively what what's like practically implemented as a string in a certain format effectively becomes type params of a fun of a function. So again, I right. can't, I can't, you know, misinterpret one of the parameters. If I try to do that again, right. the code just won't compile. Exactly, and and you know the the path param completion and checking that's kind of first base, um, and that's where a lot of people are right now is making sure that you can't write a path that doesn't exist or that you can get autocomplete. That's great. Uh, the search param stuff is much harder. And that's that's something that I've been working on for at least a year. And that's where um, your search parameters are validation-based. So yes, you're just getting a string of, could be just garbage, right? It literally is a the, the first piece of UI that your users have on your app is the text input at the top of the screen, you know? <laughs> People, people forget that the URL is just a text box. They can put anything they want in there. And so when you get that, um, you, you need to validate it. Just like you would validate 
data coming from an external API, right, is straight into your app. You have to validate that stuff. Um, and in the process of validating it, you can type it correctly. So the examples in Tansac Router use Zod, but you could use really whatever you wanted as a validation library. Zod's great because it validates and it type checks and casts it correctly. So as that string comes out of Tanstack Router, it's being parsed, fed through your validator, hopefully through something like Zod, pops out the other end as a fully validated and fully typed data structure. It's not a string. It really is just, it's just JavaScript JSON at that point. Um, and to your point about, well, can you, if I remove a route here or there, will it bark at me? And it's like, yeah, it will. But also search params. So say, you know, say you chose uh, pagination as an API early on in your app. Page index is a very common thing. And you're putting page index up in your URL, right? Uh, say 10 months from now, you're like, crap, we have to move to cursor-based pagination. We can't use page index anymore. doesn't make sense to use that. Some developer goes in to one of your routes and changes page index to cursor. Now, every single URL that was using, like writing to that route and manipulating page index, even if you had path checking, right, would still be busted. And that's why you need the strict search param checking as well. So you change that. And in Tanstack Router, anywhere that you are referencing that type of page index or that shape, or that verified uh, shape that you are passing around everywhere, those are going to fail as well. Um, and you can actually use this to version, in a way you can version your URLs, your URL search parameters. Um, and 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 have backwards support for older URL versions and schemas, which is something that we're working we're we're experimenting with at Nozzle right now. So literally, someone goes and bookmarks. So so take take a complex situation now. Add time, and it will just get worse, right? So somebody goes and bookmarks your URL that has page index three. You know, uh, they wanted to see a certain page or something or a filter. And then one of your developers changes it. You see it, red flags are where you fix it all, right? But now you've changed the URL schema and that old bookmarked link that some other user had, you don't want that to, to break, right? You want it to go to the same page and you want to you give them the same experience as best possible. So you can version your URLs and say, hey, every URL that we create right in this version of our code, we're just going to give it a version of one. You know, you can increment it up. And then for every version of your URLs that you break, you can pass an upgrade path from old search params to new search params. And if possible, intercept those old URLs coming into your app, run them through the updater cycles, reduce them through these functions to upgrade them to the newest URL schema, and then apply it. So redirection so, becomes a typed function. Yeah, because redirection works great. As, lo as, as long as you can do redirection up in the server, it's always fantastic, right? But at what point do you think it's going to be safe to do redirection of search params, complex search params on the server? And we're technically working on that as well, right? But for now, the best place to do search param redirection is technically in the client if you're using something more than, you know, just 
uh, a string and a string as your search as your search param key value, right? You have to be able to parse that and and run it through functions and upgrade it. So it's an interesting interesting challenge that we have, you know, to be able to allow users to bookmark things and share links and have those work very far into the future, even when we change URL structure. All of which is insane to think about if you were just using something like the URL search params uh, class that you're given in, you know, in the browser, which is incredibly naive. Um, there's so many layers to this problem that it's something that has to be solved, you know, first class by a router. So Tanner, I want to switch topics for a little minute. And oh, Dan, before I forget, uh, you'd mentioned about something about putting your two cents in. Have you ever wondered why you put your two cents in, but it's a penny for your thoughts? Because somebody's making a penny. <clears throat> but anyway, um, so Tanner, I noticed that, uh, you know, I'm looking at all our pictures here and you called this the tan stack and all you and along with the rest of us are pretty white. So I'm just curious as to see where the name tan stack come from in case I might've missed that somewhere. I'm not tan, that's for sure. But my name is Tanner, so it kind of works out. Um, okay. No, it, it was a, it was initially a, it was initially a joke. Um, I was just building these tools, and they were just under just whatever names. You know, had nothing to do with me at the time. Um, but one of my friends, Sean Wang, aka Swix, Swix. we were sitting at React Rally uh, a couple of years ago, and he was like, "Man, you need a name for all your stuff." And I was like, yeah, but I don't know what I would call it, you know? And he's like, it's uh, it's the stack, the tan stack. And he kind of just jokingly said it. And everybody else at the table was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I'm like, no, I don't want to name something with my name in it. That's, that's a very Linus Torvald thing to do. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and he's like, no, it's catchy. You should use it. Because jam stack was a super hot term right. at the time. You and mean have Linus he, named Git after himself? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and and he, he just kind of started telling people that. And then he tweeted it a few times and it just kind of started catching on. And then I referred to it in conversation once and nobody even blinked at me. They were just like, oh yeah, cool. And so I decided that when I was going agnostic with my libraries, that I was just going to lean into it really hard and see what happens. Um, Mostly because there was like, there's no SEO for tan stack. I think there's a little bit for like some kind of like tanning lotion or something. Uh, but if you Google tan stack, you're not really going to get a lot of other things. So it was a good SEO branding move. Um, and I don't mind a little bit of attribution to the projects I've created. Um, but I didn't want it to be so. I didn't want it to be so personalized that, you know, I couldn't like have somebody else run the company or sell it or whatever in the future. And I think, I think Tanstack is generic enough that it, it's still okay to do that. So yeah, um, that's how it came to be. Cool. So I was looking at the, the table implementation, you know, while you were, you guys were getting into the nitty gritty on routing. And I noticed that it, you work pretty closely with AG Grid. Yeah. And, you know, we had Niall Crosby on, uh, mm. it's been a while, a year or two, one of the best podcast episodes 
ever that we've done because he brought the dad jokes and then some. It was awesome. (laughs) But um, I'm just curious to see a couple of questions on the table. One, I'm curious to see how it is you're working with AG Grid. I mean, they have their separate product. Are you basically a wrapper around AG Grid or or how is that integration work? So it's funny there. There isn't really a lot of like any code level integration between AG Grid and Tansag Table. Um, so really, really what happened is that, <clears throat> you know, AG Grid is just this mega powerhouse of a product that can do incredible things that I would never, ever want to implement in Tanstack Table, nor would I have the time to do it without becoming a company like AG Grid, right? Um, and AG Grid its purpose is to empower those types of solutions and help really large, complex organizations have pivot tables and Excel and like this full power suite, you know. And and they're not really concerned with writing, you know, with, with providing a ridiculously simple, free, open source table creator, right? That's also really lightweight. Um, so we kind of accept these specific constraints for each of our libraries. And, you know, everybody pegged us as competitors really from the beginning when, in fact, me and Niall, we've been talking for a while and we're not really competitors. We're just two very different implementations for the different spaces in data grid ecosystem. And, but there's a lot of other companies out there who are, who are trying to rival AG grid um, and there's a lot of other open source tables who are trying to rival Tansec table. And we just kind of decided we wanted to share ideas and share concepts and make sure that we were making each other better as much as possible. And, and also, it's an alignment of ecosystem. I, I don't plan on ever creating a company out of Tansec table, a big fat data grid company, you know, and charging, licensing, and stuff like that. And I don't want to build the features for that. But I needed somewhere to send people when they say, oh, hey, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm X Fortune 100 company and we need a pivot table for our, you know, for, for our stock exchange app or whatever. And, and I'm going to say, you should just go use AG Grid. Like I needed an official partner to say, you know, for this side of the, for these use cases that we don't cover, this is our preferred route. And, and it's an educated one. And it's it's a decent handoff to say, okay, go go play around with AG Grid. And it's a and similarly, <laughs> Right. And similarly, AG Grid, you know, when, when, they, when they get questions of, hey, well, are you guys going to build a headless version? I need a, I need a table library that you know, weighs less than than 70 kilobytes or whatever, and some really lightweight, they don't want to have to deal with that either. They should, they say, well, if that's your main use case, you go use Tansac table, right? So I guess if I would classify it, it'd be, it's more like a, like an ecosystem marketing partnership. So a question about the term you just used. We, we kind of touched it on in the conversation we had briefly before we started recording. Uh, it used to be that when people said headless, I took that to mean that they are UI-less, kind of like uh, Puppeteer being a headless browser. Uh, yeah. And But now more and more, or let's say headless CMSs, as opposed to WordPress, where the WordPress, the CMS, 
has its own user interface. So you have a headless CMS, which doesn't have a user interface. But now more right. and more, I'm seeing like this combination of headless UI. And you kind of also mentioned it in the context of, uh, of the 10 stack table, that it's kind of a headless UI. So it seems like to me like a bit of a contradiction in terms. What does headless UI actually mean? I think it's an ironic term. <laughs> it is. It's maybe a misnomer, <laughs> but, but but I like it because it, it is there is some truth to it. So headless UI, headless meaning you're you're taking the UI out of it, right? So what is headless UI? I think it's it's taking maybe we're splitting hairs a little bit here, but it's taking the actual visual uh, markup and styling out of the picture, right? Because user interface just isn't just markup and styling. There's there's a lot of logic to it, and so that's when you when you hear headless UI, I believe that's what people are referring to, and that's what I refer to is that we're talking about utilities that are built that provide you everything to build the UI except for the visual markup and style piece of it. Don't we just call that a library? Yeah, but I mean, AG Grid is a library too. It's not headless though. It's just one more way of differentiating. Just another dif- differentiating term. Like, okay, so component is something that is meant to render. Library is something that is meant to process or do work. Or I don't. Eh. I I I'm I'm with you. I am with you on that one. And and I kind of played those strings a little bit uh, in the early days of React Table. People didn't get that, mostly because component architecture wasn't fully embraced in the web ecosystem like it is today. Probably do better today if we did it again. But um, like component versus library, people just, especially you know, uh, new people coming into programming, they don't they don't know what the difference is between that. They see right through it. So for better or worse, it, it got a coin. It got a coined term. Uh, the first the first place I actually heard it was from Kent C Dodds who built a library called Downshift in React. And it used render props. So you rendered a component called Downshift, but then you it just fed you a child as a function, which gave you all of the logic and all the things to hook up your own UI. So that's kind of where, like, was it still a component? Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Was it a library? Yes, it was. But it was headless, right? So it's, it's kind of like... Last um, differentiating I like blaming Kent. <laughs> Yeah. So it's kind of yeah. like a higher order sort of a component that provides some component functionality, but not the actual componentness of the component, as it were. Let's call it let's call it decoupled logic is really what it is. Yeah. I mean, is we we've we've decoupled the logic from the rendering process. Well, unfortunately, yeah. to go back to what you said earlier, Chuck and I really can't split hairs. <clears throat> if you see this, you know what I mean. So I mean, usually when I see the headless UI, it's, you know, I think probably one of the more common ones that I've seen is like a tailwind, you know, where it's just you add your classes yeah. to your markup and and you style and theme, seem things that way. They, in fact, they actually have a library called headless UI. I think if you go to headlessui.com, that's, you know, it's their components that you that you import in and, and plug into a, you know, view a React project. But yeah, the answer to took my question, that was my next question on on adding stuff on top of it. Now, do you need any type of, of uh, plug-in or adapter, I guess, for specific uh, libraries, like a, 
for instance, a tailwind, or if you wanted to use, I don't know, Bulma, Bulma or Bootstrap or something else, or do you just install it and start adding your classes in your markup? Yeah, you don't really need too much of it. Um, most of the adapters are just based on the real, it's based on the framework and how it interprets specific attributes and props that you send back. So um, there's a little bit of an assumption with my libraries that, you know, when you, when you say, hey, give me the props that I need to attach to this mm -hmm. thing or the, or the functions that I need to attach to this thing, that your framework's going to be able to understand those. Um, like, I think one of the most agnostic ones is probably the virtualizer. Like, the React Virtual Svelte or uh, Solid Virtual Library, like Tensec Virtual, it it doesn't really use the concept of props really anymore. It's just kind of like, give me the give me the size, give me the size of the virtualizer, give me the current index, the offsets, give me the the measurements. So even the concepts themselves inside of the library have have become agnostic to where, you know, it's not a prop. Or an attribute or a binding it's just data right and and you're working with callbacks or pub sub or whatever to fish that data in and out of your component that you hook up so um that's that's kind of the best case scenario and, and there's some that have prop getters so like tansac table has prop getters like hey give me the props that i'm going to use to put onto this react component um, some of that can change a little bit between frameworks so uh, but yeah, for the most part, you can use anything you want. So Tansac Table is agnostic and headless. Uh, one of my contributors, Kevin Vandy, he used Tansac Table to create another library called Material React Table that is a competitor to the MUI table, right? But it uses Tansac Table under the hood, but wraps everything up in the Material UI um, component architecture. There's, you know, you can do all of my stuff is implemented with Tailwind. So you can just hook it up to Tailwind. You could hook it up to anything you want, really. Um, because at the end of the day, it's just data. Page indexes, hand click handlers, you know, mapping over data, rendering rows of things. So you, so you have to actually you define your table, TRTD markup in your component, and then you're just basically plugging in the data? Yep, exactly. In fact, if you go to tanstack.com, click on Tanstack table, and then just scroll down, there is a there's a full width example on Code Sandbox. Yeah, I've, been, to source. I've been able to get those to come up, so I've been playing, trying to. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I can actually get you a permalink here, then that would just go straight to the example. But I'll give you. So here's a basic example. Source main. I'm just going to paste this into. I'll paste this into here. So, if you click on that link and go down, you'll have to use the the file explorer to click on main.tsx in the source directory. Mm -hmm. But in that file, you will see the table structure, and it's just a big, you know, roller coaster of JSX, where we're creating the table, the T head looping over header groups to create table table header rows, T body rows, and so on and so forth. So it can be as simple or as complex as you want. Like my table component in Nozzle itself is 600, 650 lines long, right? There's a, 
there's utilities in there. It's using Tailwind. Um, there's utilities in here to show and hide filters. So I built filter bars and dev tools around it. So table has dev tools that you can put in there. Um, and I've just kind of built my own structure exactly how I want it for nozzle. Uh, under the hood, it uses tan stack table. So cool. I'm going to start heading us toward uh, the end of the show with picks and stuff. Um, Tanner, if people want to find out more, uh, what's the best place to, for them to go learn more about tan stack or to connect with you on social media or GitHub? The best place to go is tanstack.com, uh, home for all the libraries. You can follow me on Twitter at Tanner Lindsley. And then, uh, yeah, all of the all the maintainers um, that help me out are on Twitter as well. You can follow TK Dodo, Dominic Dorfmeister. You can also follow Kevin Vandy, and Pysik is the one who's working on React uh, or on Tanstack Virtual right now. I think it's pretty awesome. amazing that you took an actual business need, which is all the stuff that you're doing for Nozzle but turned it into such an amazing collection of open soft uh, so, uh, open source software i think it's 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 really dope thanks that's awesome yeah and really we've just built a lot of these tools to help us out in building our own products right mm-hmm. um and that's something that i want to stay true to for as long as possible is that you know it's fun it's fun to have open source and, and yeah, it helps me make a little extra money on the side here and there. And, and it helps my contributors make a little extra money as well. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all building these things because we need them in production for real world, real world use cases. And I think that's what really drives the innovation is just the, the practicality and the pragmatism that comes from having a product, you know, that, that has users and, People who, you know, at the end of the day, users who don't care if you use TypeScript or not, uh, but they they help you drive drive your product forward and make good decisions. You know. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do our self promo real quick. Uh, Steve, mm-hmm. what are you working on that people should know about? Uh, nothing new since last week. Uh, just still banging away on my Inertia View Laravel project. That's a lot of fun. I keep thinking I need to start doing some blogging about some of the things I've been encountering and working on in that, but uh, other than also hosting Views on View, nothing really new. Awesome. Dan, what are you working on that people should know about? Mostly demonstrating for Israel to remain a democracy. Uh, That's kind of filling up a lot of our time. Uh, Last night, you know, we went out uh, because of events that are happening in Israel. We went out at 10 a.m. At 10 p.m., sorry. We only got back home at around 2 a.m. from uh, demonstrating in the streets. So, you know, Take some time. All right. AJ, what are you working on that people should know about? Still doing the Beyond Code course work. Uh, still still working on Shell Workshop stuff. And then hard drives are here. Network gear is here. The palette of servers is on the way. And we are looking at the name BNNA. So it's bnna.net. There's no website yet, but the cloud hosting, privately owned cloud hosting is coming together. (laughs) Nice. Uh, For me, I've got two things. One is the book club. We're starting a new book next week. It is The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. Uh, It's a self-improvement book, not a programming book. And then we're doing seven languages in seven weeks. 
And then the other thing that I've got going is I'm doing a game dev meetup. Um, it's going to be a weekly call. Uh, we're going through uh, Jason Wyman's um, game dev boot camp. Um, you can sign up for it. Uh, go to topendevs.com slash game dev. And then um, use the code JavaScript5. You'll get 20% off. And then just let me know that you bought the course and we'll jump in on the call. And we're just going to talk our talk about what we're learning in the course. So uh, kind of self-paced, nothing, you know, rigid. So anyway, um, Tanner, what are you working on that people should know about? That we haven't already talked about, I guess. Yeah, we, we talked about a lot of them right now. Um, uh, you know, I, I've been working for the last three weeks on a big sprint at Nozzle at my startup. Uh, if anybody listening is into SEO or runs a marketing agency or or is over marketing for their company, you need to come check out Nozzle. We're doing some pretty amazing things. And then uh, something I've been excited about recently too is a library called Observable Plot by Observable HQ. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but that's the reason I'm probably going to be sunsetting my my data visual, data viz library. By the way, nice. uh, Tanner, I have to say your daughter is beautiful, and that's one more reason for people to watch this on YouTube. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah. She yeah. she saw you guys and immediately calmed down. So, yeah. <laughs> thanks. Nice. All right, let's do picks. Steve, what are your picks? So, came across a pretty cool little article um, on Hacker News. It's in a... Uh, publication called Petapixel. And its title is How John Glenn's $40 Camera Forced NASA to, NASA to Rethink Space Missions. And it's one of those things that shows how just some little, you know, scratch your own itch type of thing can really have a big impact. And it just talks about how, uh, you know, his uh, Mercury mission had been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And so he went and bought a little $40 camera from a uh, local drugstore Help NASA engineers help fix it up so he could use it in space, put a handle on it, and did a couple other little things. Took some really awesome pictures, and they got back, and NASA's like, hmm, we should be taking pictures on these space missions so people can see what we're actually seeing up there. And uh, as a result of, of what they saw there, they uh, ended up you know, adding things to future missions to, to really capture uh, the video and the pictures that are up there. Uh, for my uh, dad jokes of the week, which is, as I like to say, and I think I'm probably the only person that likes to say this is sort of the high point of every uh, episode. Um, <clears throat> so there's this uh, chemistry student, uh, teacher says to his student, uh, hey, did you know that uh, Adams have mass? And he said, mass? I didn't even know they were Catholic. Right. Um, and then uh, with all the... <laughs> Thank you, Dan, for giving me something to laugh at. Uh, just uh, more of an observation. Books can teach you everything you need to know, except how to read. I don't actually agree with that one, I have to say. Mm, okay. Well, don't look too deep into that. It was more of a joke. But And then finally, um, there's supposed to be a new time travel movie coming out next year. It was actually pretty good. Those are my picks. All right, AJ, what are your picks? I don't. I don't think I have anything new on picks. I'm just. I'm just really excited about putting together these these servers. And oh no, I do have one thing. Uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but for the first time ever, I have 
time machine backups working over the network. And that is through a Dell R720 with a, with a, I think it's a, a flash controller. I didn't flash it, but it came that way in HBA mode. Put my RAID discs in there, put Proxmox and FreeNAS on it. Probably too complicated for the average person. Uh, but for people that are doing interested in home lab stuff, R720 is just a very normal, uh, regular mm, server to get for a home lab, pretty inexpensive. And then Proxmox allows you to run virtual machines and you can run TrueNAS on it directly or you can run Proxmox and TrueMAS. I had a buddy help me set it up. But anyway, it's cool that I now finally, finally, finally can access all of my stuff over the network and so can my wife. It's not just a RAID hooked up to my computer. It's a RAID on a NAS and time machine backups are working between both of our computers. I don't have to ask my wife to plug in the drive to the computer occasionally because she wouldn't do that. And we both have business stuff where backups are important. So it's nice. It's nice. So out of curiosity, material uh, on how to do that later. AJ, out of curiosity, why do you back up to an actual drive, physical drive rather than let's say to the cloud? Because I'm me. I I don't like the cloud. I I don't, (laughs) I don't like that. You know, this, you know, this, I, I don't like the idea that someone else, it, it, for, I mean, read, read the terms of service on iCloud, that their guarantee is zero guarantee, zero warranty, zero liability, zero SLA. There is no, and, and if you talk with people that have used iCloud for backups, people that have had a problem and needed to restore, either they can't figure it out or something went wrong at some point it was turned off and they didn't realize it was turned off and they don't have their backups. So I, it just, iCloud, it gives you peace of mind in that you think that something's happening, but in conversations I've had with people, it has not been reliable. And also it's not a backup. If you don't have the original, when you use iCloud, it deletes the files off of your computer. So now you have no backup. There's one copy of the data and it's an iCloud and you don't have the copy locally. So I, I, you know, what I, what I want is the, the box, you know, just give me, give me the box. And then, and then I would use iCloud as a backup, but if I don't have the original, then I don't have a backup. So it's a philosophical thing, but I, I don't think it's a good place to go where we are all slaves to big tech where we own nothing and are happy about it. All right. Well, (laughs) I love the rants. I just, I do. I get a kick out of them. Um, All right, Dan, what are your picks? So I'm going to add one that I didn't plan on just because of the stuff that AJ just said about the cloud. It's the, the stories of the bastard operator from hell or BOFH. If you've ever heard about it, it's a, fictional cis administrator from the uh, early 90s who manages uh, the the systems in some uh, fictitious university. And the reason that AJ reminded me of it is because his favorite way to back up stuff is to just send it into DevNull. And, you know, that's, that's that's a really fast backup. Uh, and also the the story where somebody complains in rather 
uh, and like, uh, you know, in a rude sort of a way about the fact that they don't have a sufficiently large quota in, in their system. So he frees up lots of quota for them by erasing all of their files. It's, it's really amusing stories and, and I recommend them. We'll put a link to them if I can find it. Um, so that would be my, my first pick. My second is unfortunately not so funny and pleasant. Uh, we've been talking about the fact that it's pretty uh, extreme times, let's call it like that, here in Israel. I mean, we are, we, it feels to us like we're literally fighting for our democracy, uh, where uh, the newly elected government in Israel is trying to take away our, our rights uh, and to eliminate the... Uh, all, all the safeguards against, um, you know, uh, sort of, let's call it dictatorial uh, uh, type of uh, a government. Um, and, you know, no, nobody would have thought a year ago that we would be in a situation like this, or even six months ago, or even four months ago, yet here we are. At least on the positive side, it's really encouraging to see, seeing a lot of people coming together and literally willing to fight against it. Uh, we talked about the fact that, uh, you know, something like 10% of the of the country is actively participating in demonstrations. It, you know, if you, if you think about it in the context of the U.S., it's as if over 30 million people were out in the streets demonstrating, not just supporting things, you know, from their living, uh, from their living room or, you know, or, or uh, thinking, you know, that this, the, you know, this shouldn't happen, but actually taking to the streets and demonstrating against it. Uh, it's really heartening to see all the people coming together in this way, and and hopefully we'll be able to to uh, prevent uh, the, the the bad things from happening. So this would be my second pick, and my third and final pick, as always, you know, we can think of even worse ca- case scenarios would be the ongoing war in Ukraine, which is still ongoing. So anything people listening can do to help either the people to help either the people of Israel or the people of Ukraine, please do so. Um, so I usually do a board game pick. This week it's between two castles, um, and uh, it's kind of a different board game. Usually, what you're doing is you're usually either trying to like build an engine or you know build a deck that helps you win stuff or things like that. This one's a little bit different because it's a semi-cooperative game. And um, what you're doing is you're building two castles. You're building one on your right and one on your left. And the person sitting next to you is doing the same thing. They're building one on the right and one on the left. And so if they're sitting to your right, the, the one on their left is the same one as the one on your right. And so you're working together to build these castles. And so you draw these tiles that have rooms for the castle They'll have rules about how you can place them and how they score. And as you build the castle on your left and the castle on your right, um, you're trying to get them both as high scoring as possible. And the reason is, is that at the end of the game, who whichever castle is your second highest castle, right? So whichever one's lower of the two, that's your score, whatever that castle scores. So that means that you want to have number one on one side and number two on the other side. And so is everybody else. And so it's really interesting take on gameplay because it's got this dynamic where you're working with one person on one castle, you're working with another person on the other castle, and you're trying to figure out 
like I said, how to build them up so that they can, um, so that you can win. Um, when we played this before, uh, yeah, the, the guy that won, yeah, he had number one on his right and number two on his left. And so he won, right? But, uh, you know, the person who he shared the top scoring castle with on the other side, his second highest castle wasn't as high as scoring, so he didn't win. And so anyway, it's really interesting. Um, it's And like I said, it's between two castles of Mad King Ludwig. Um, relatively simple game. I think we played it in about an hour. There were five of us. You can play up to seven players. Um, and Board Game Geek has a weight of 2.17. So it's a pretty easy, casual game. Um, there are a lot of combinations you can do and a lot of rooms that do different things. But at the end of the day, it's not so complicated that it's just impossible to figure out what your strategy should be. So um, anyway, so that's my pick there. Um, you know, I already did kind of the self-promo stuff. Uh, the only other pick I have, so this weekend I did a triathlon, except that they canceled the bike because of ice on the road. So it was uh, sort of a triathlon. It was a 5K with a 300-meter swim at the end. And uh, it was awesome. And I felt really good about it at the end. Um, I'm still a little bit tired from it. Not that it was a particularly long race, but just when you go all out for an hour, it just really... Um, because I finished in under an hour, it, it, it was just, yeah, I was so tired, like all that day and Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, I was just sitting on the couch, just dozing in and out. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, totally loving it. And it's, it's awesome. So if you're into triathlons, uh, let me know. I'd love to like put together a little group maybe on our, uh, oh, I need to talk about that too for a second on our circle, uh, community. Um, and I'm working on changing it over. I set it up as family.topendevs.com, but now it's going to be hub.topendevs.com. That's where all the courses are going to be. It's where the community discussions are going to be. You can see when somebody schedules a new episode and start, you know, if you have questions that you want us to ask them and things, you can ask in there. Um, so it's going to be pretty awesome. And uh, I'm really excited for all of that. Um, all of our current hosts should have already gotten invites. If you haven't, let me know. Um, but yeah, we're, we're kind of putting everything together there so that we can have the kinds of conversations that I kind of wanted out of Slack, but wasn't quite having them happen. Um, but yeah, like I said, all the content for the courses, the book club and everything else is going to be in there for now. So, uh, anyway, I'm pretty excited to be moving ahead for that. And then, um, join us for the game dev, uh, meetings, uh, Tanner, what are your picks? I guess I accidentally did one of my picks. All good. But Observable Plot is my favorite library right now. My new favorite library. I, it really is good. Like, if you want to explore data really quickly, like I had, I had a couple tweets about it that explain why I think it's amazing. But um, it's good enough where, like, with a couple more features, so it doesn't have tooltips built in yet, and it doesn't have mm -hmm. cursors or crosshairs yet. But once it has those two things, like I'm pretty sure I'm moving over most of my data viz anywhere that I do data viz, I'm moving it over to that library. It's really good. Go check it out. It's it's by Observable, which is a cool company because they have their Observable product, which is like these notebooks that are fully reactive. So it's kind of like writing Markdown and code and whatnot, but it's it's fully reactive code, kind of like an Excel sheet. 
it's it's pretty fun to work with. So that's my first like tech pick. Uh, my next pick is I just got a tonal, which is the uh, fitness apparatus that mounts on your wall um, that has kind of like the digital weight inside it and everything with a screen on the front. Oh, those and look cool. It is a lot of fun. It is really great because I, I just, we have not had time to go to the gym with kids. Gyms aren't super close. Um, and this has kind of like, I have tried a couple of things to try and supplement that problem. Like I did Supernatural for a year, about a year ago, year and a half ago. And that was a lot of fun, but very single dimensional. Um, but we got this tonal and I just love it. It's like, it's like going to the gym for 40, 50 minutes a day. Uh, but it's just right there in your house. It's great. So a lot of fun. And then my last pick, which is totally random, but last night I downloaded the Metroid Prime game, the remastered version on my Switch. And I played that game as a youth on my GameCube, which was the very first game that came with the GameCube when I was little. Man, that thing looks good. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. I have not had a lot of fun with like an adventure shooter game in a long time. And believe it or not, it's the remastered Metroid Prime last night that I was like, hmm, I'd rather be playing that than working right now. <laughs> so nice. That was one that was a lot of fun. I have a GameCube right up there in my office. And yeah, we, we won't talk about how much time I spend on it. I lent mine to somebody to play Super Smash Bros. like, you know, six years ago and never saw it again. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that. if you want one, you talk to me. I'll get you hooked up. <laughs> I've I've done some mods on them so that you can play the games from SD card when the laser goes bad or so that the laser doesn't go bad. And, and But but now the Switch pretty much has every game that I was playing on the yeah. GameCube is now on the Switch. So I don't uh, I haven't pulled out the GameCube in a while. Yeah, I, gotta, I, I had, gotta pull it right. out to finish my Final Fantasy VI game save, though. Yeah, I've opened Emu on my computer and and occasionally play some some games through there with some like weird PS3 looking controllers that <laughs> I plug in there, but it uh, doesn't cover all the bases. All right, well, I'm gonna wrap us up. Uh, you got a little nerd talk in there, guys. I, I like it, folks. Max out. <laughs>